Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. You may be seated. Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, and we will, we will get there in, in a moment. Um, before we get into our, to our text and into, uh, continue into our series this morning, um, a couple of you recently brought to my attention, uh, and I just asked if we intend to recite the Apostles' Creed indefinitely. On, on Sunday mornings here at Grace Hill? And the answer is no. Uh, as we've consistently uh, said and hope that we're saying often enough every, every Sunday is that from the beginning of the year, our desire has been to focus on at least the first 13 weeks, focus on this, this unifying historic creed of the church uh, while also looking at scripture, uh, to really be convinced that the things we believe about the gospel are in fact true. Uh, and this is what scripture teaches. Um, we've been re- reciting um, the creed, obviously, if you've been here um, any week uh, this, this year, in the past few, few weeks. And, and it's been through our entire uh, study on the creed. And while we don't intend to recite the Apostles' Creed forever on Sunday, we do intend to believe it every Sunday, every day, forever. Because we actually believe the things encapsulated in these propositions are true. We believe that this is a true representation of what Christian men and women have believed forever. Not just in Merton, everywhere. And so while we don't intend to to recite uh, the creed um, every week. We do intend to believe it. And for those of you that were wondering why we didn't communicate that more clearly, I personally want to apologize to you um, and ask your forgiveness. Uh, it wasn't our intent, uh, mine or the elders, uh, to, to lead you on to think that this was some uh, permanent change uh, that we would be doing. And I also want to uh, just continue to invite all of you to keep asking questions of myself, of all the elders. I think this is one of the beautiful things about how a church works, is we can actually talk together. We can ask questions. We can learn together. We can grow together. And as we pursue unity, that's what we'd expect. uh, That is how a church functions. I think that's what we see in scripture, and that's what we would call ourselves to, is to to ask questions. We've had a number of conversations, uh, very encouraging, helpful questions, hearing your concerns and, um, and just hearing you share stories. It is, it's been beautiful. It's been hard, but so rich and so helpful in so many ways. And so uh, if you have questions or concerns, uh, talk to myself or any of the elders. We'd love to do that. This, this is how we grow as a church. Um, and we want to grow. We want to pursue, pursue unity. So um, why don't you pray with me briefly? A Father... I know all of us here, uh, as it been mentioned before, we are broken and needy people. We need you so much. I need you, Lord. 
not feeling my best this morning, so I ask, Lord, that you would be gracious, you'd be merciful as we look to to focus on your gospel, on the work of your son this morning. Lord, would, would your, your son's name be magnified before us, Lord? Would we, would we leave this place impressed by nothing else than by the work of your son, Jesus Christ? That we can't help but sit or stand or wherever we go, simply just to be in awe of, of who the person is and the works of this God-man, Jesus, are, and what it has meant to us in our lives, Lord. May that be clear this morning. May we long to worship you and praise you because of your son, Jesus. Amen. Now, all of you in this room, all of you, even if you're a child, all of you have a creed. You all believe something. Um, even if you say, no creed but Christ, or even if you say, I only believe the Bible, that is your creed. Uh, now, furthermore, just because I say the Apostles' Creed, or you say the Apostles' Creed, or anybody says, says it, doesn't mean that you believe them. Anyone can say words. Non-Christians and Christians alike can speak the words of a creed, They can sing songs like we sing. But what matters for all of us, for for myself included, for my own kids, for all of us, what matters is that we actually believe the things that we're saying. That is what makes a difference. Believing the truths about Jesus are what saves. Not simply speaking them. Now we are going to continue the study of the Apostles' Creed this morning. We're kind of at like the halfway mark. You know, if you look through the creed, if there, if there was such a thing as a center or a middle, um, we're about there, okay? And, uh, but that begs the question, I think, up, up until this point, of all the things we've kind of looked at and explored together, which event would you say is probably the most important? You know, if you had to pick just one, uh, would you say it's the Incarnation? Would you say it's the crucifixion? Maybe some of you would be on team resurrection. I don't know. Uh, what would be the most important? And I, and I think if we spent enough time thinking this over, we'd realize that there really is no final answer because they're all interrelated, interconnected. You can't really have one without the other anyway, so, so they all matter. This morning we are going to focus on two particular phrases of the creed. Well, you've said them already, but the two phrases we're looking at is, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, Jesus ascended, right? he went up, and Jesus sat down. Those are two truths that we, that we confess. Jesus ascended, the ascension of Christ, and the session of Christ. But the, the, the significance of the ascension and session seem to be, I think, in many ways, vastly underestimated. So um, they do happen to be some of the most fundamental and important elements in Scripture, the storyline from Old Testament into the New Testament. Uh, but 
I have often wondered, maybe you've wondered the same thing, why did things like this even, even make it into the creed? Like the ascension of Christ and the session of Christ, him sitting down. Why, is, why was that important uh, to include? Because we've all likely received Christmas cards, right? Christmas card, uh, Easter cards, you probably sent them, received them. Um, how many of you received a Ascension Day card? Anyone? Okay, I didn't think so, yeah. Why not? <laughs> uh, the truth is, and I would put myself in this camp too, we might not think that the ascension of Christ and the session of Christ are really that important. We just might think that they're kind of maybe just side issues. Uh, there's no real substance to them. They're not very relevant for even how we live our lives. Um, does it matter if we believe these things? Are they optional beliefs? Um, you know, what difference does it really make where Jesus is right now and what he's doing? You know, is, isn't it enough for you? And I mean, let's be fair. Isn't it enough just to believe that he died on the cross and he rose again? Is, is that it? Are these just bonus beliefs? Uh, his ascension and, and, and his session. But I do think that what we'll see today, though, is that one of the most profoundly rich truths that we can confess together is that Jesus went up and he sat down. Uh, we believe that Jesus ascended into heaven, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Uh, the reason for this is we actually we need a God who went up. We need a God who is in heaven. In all his glory, majesty, and fame, a God who shows his mission is complete, that shows that he was victorious by returning to his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. But it's not just a God who goes up. We need a God who sits. And it just sounds so insignificant, doesn't it? We need a God who is seated. Because a God who sits is a God who says, I have finished my work. I have accomplished my work of redemption. There is no more work to be done. There is no more that I need to do to free you from your sin. And so we need to have a God who has sits, a God who reigns and, and rules the world, who sits on his throne. So this morning, there really are, to boil it down, two revolutionary truths. And there are five, at least, five life-changing implications. So two revolutionary truths. Those are Jesus went up and Jesus sat down. But the five life-changing implications of this is that Jesus reigns, Jesus sends, Jesus prepares, Jesus rests, and Jesus advocates. That's the reign ascending, prepare, rest, and advocates. So we'll we'll get to those implications, but first, of the the first two revolutionary truths that we'll focus on is the ascension of Christ. So Jesus went up. Jesus, our God, went up. We believe that Jesus ascended into heaven. Now there are detailed descriptions of of the ascension located in three different portions of Scripture. Now one of them was read uh, this morning by Andrew, read Luke and the conclusion of, of Luke's Gospel. Uh, the other place you would find it if you were curious, and I, again, I'll admit, sometimes you don't know where the ascension is actually mentioned, but Mark records it in the book of Acts. So we read Luke, and Luke obviously gives an account of the ascension, but also, remarkably, it's like a celebration. It's like Jesus goes away, and they were happy. <laughs> they were worshiping and celebrating. And then in Acts chapter 1, 
Luke tells us that after the resurrection, Jesus was on earth for 40 days, but then he was taken up. So, so here we are, and so I think one of the fair, the fair questions is, where did Jesus go? Uh, another question would be, why didn't he just stay with everybody? He left. So where, where did he go? The fact that, again, the fact that Jesus had a resurrected body uh, that was subject to spatial limitations means that he could only be at one place at one time. And so that means that Jesus did literally go physically somewhere. There was some place that Jesus went. Uh, and the author of Hebrews, if you want to open to chapter 10, the author of Hebrews of all the places we could look, and there are many, but uh, the author of Hebrews, what he does for us is he reveals an important detail regarding Christ's location while kind of articulating the effectiveness of, of Christ's sacrifice for sin. So if you look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 14 is what I'll read. There is an important detail given, and it's in connection with our other truth that we'll get to. It's the, the session, but I'm going to read from verse 11 through 14, and then we'll We'll continue talking about the ascension. So the author says in verse 11, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, again, if our question is, where did Jesus go? Where did Jesus ascend? Well, Jesus, when we think of ascending, he went up, he went to heaven. But more specifically, what, what the author of Hebrews tells us is he, where he went was to the right hand of God. And so to ascend, I think most of us would agree, if we think of in, in terms of just like um, how we use common language, and particularly in biblical categories, the word ascend means, certainly does mean at least to go up, um, though the word ascend um, is clearly commonly used in that uh, throughout the Bible. But what we see also when we look through scripture is that worship is rooted in, in kind of a descriptive way to say like how the physical, physical world is constructed. And so um, when people were going to the temple, they were going up to Jerusalem. They were going up to the temple. When, uh, when people would travel up to the temple, they would also um, read and sing together what are known as the Psalms of Ascent. There's actually a portion, if you look at Psalms uh, 120 through 134, you might see a title in your, in your Bible that just says, these are Psalms of Ascent. So these would be common songs they would sing as they were on their way up to the temple. There were songs they were singing as they were ascending to go to worship. Um, so the temple was up on a hill. Um, where did Moses and Elijah go to meet with God? They went up. Right? They ascended. So you see lots of themes uh, throughout the Bible that give us at least the concept of going up to be with God, looking upwards. So where did Jesus go? Well, he went up to, it's the H word, the good one. Heaven. Uh, now, heaven in, the, in your Bibles can mean at least three things. Now, heaven can, it can be the eternal dwelling of God. It can be where God has always kind of existed, where God 
wherever God exists, wherever God is manifesting his presence, that is, that is heaven for eternity. Even before the earth was created and formed, God was in heaven. That, that was heaven. Um, it's also the place where angels and man will someday share life with God. And so there's a place that we will go. We will look for it. It's kind of like the uh, heaven is the shorthand for our hope as Christians. We want to be in heaven. We want to go to heaven. Um, and the third thing we see in Scripture is heaven really is just the sky. And where is the sky? Up. <laughs> there's no coincidence that when the Bible uses language like ascend or heaven, that we're also looking into this big vastness that goes on and on for infinity, uh, as far as we can tell. It just blows our mind how far up you can go. But the ascension is referring to upwards. It's big. It's vast. And the scriptures speak of, of heaven not with just subjective language, but with an objective location. It's a better place. And it is, it is a place. So many passages describe heaven with directional language. So obviously, for our purposes, Christ ascended to it, to heaven, the Holy Spirit descends from it. Elijah was taken up into it. The new Jerusalem will come down from it. Jesus ascended in a physical body up to heaven. And, and the report from the angels is that he will also come back down from heaven. And so there's clearly a localized uh, idea of heaven. We think about where it is. But where did Jesus go? Well, the author of Hebrews gives us something more specific, right? He says that Jesus went up to sit at the right hand of God. So the accession certainly has to do with God's going up, not just going up into heaven, like generally speaking, but to the very throne of God in particular. The, the ascension is a, is a kind of like a word picture for all of us, uh, implying the, the very exaltation of our God. He was exalted on the highest places. He went up as a way of showing that there was a, as a very uh, strong way to affirm his supreme dignity and power. Um, up to God's right hand. A place of regal authority. A place of, of, of royalty is where Jesus went. And so the ascension proclaims the certainty of his kingdom. That his sacrificial work is completed. The ascension communicates that the Father actually approved of, of the work of Christ. There was, there was a, come sit next to me. <laughs> You're done. Jesus got to sit down at the Father's right hand. The ascension marks the seal of the Father's pleasure on his ministry. Uh, we, can't, we can't really take this too lightly. The Father demanded perfect righteous obedience. We couldn't do it, but Jesus did. And so then the Father says, sit next to me. Sit next to me in your throne. You are done. You have accomplished it. Now reign where you belong. And so he's seated on his throne. He's lifted up and high. And the work of Christ was satisfactory. It's complete. So his ascension to the throne, his going upward, is really evidence that the Father has accepted all of Christ's work on your behalf. Now, what that means for you and I is that you don't have to work. <laughs> Jesus has done all of the work. It is finished. It is complete. How do we know that? Because Jesus went up. The ascension of Christ really is, it is our hope. Uh, 
the ascension is our hope of what the Savior has accomplished, and the ascension is our hope of, of also where we're going. It's the hope of knowing that, I mean, if Jesus couldn't go there, <laughs> what hope do you and I have? But Jesus did rise. He ascended to the Father. So, again, truth number one, Jesus went up. We believe that Jesus ascended into heaven, but Jesus sat down. Truth number two, Jesus sat down. We believe that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so point two, really, if point one was the ascension of Christ, point two this morning is just that the, the session of Christ. Christ sat down at the right hand of God. Now, we say that Jesus sat down. Um, some people refer to this as the session. If you've never heard that before, there's a new, new term for you to use now. Um, you can work it into a conversation later. Um, so the session of Christ, he is seated uh, the ascension of Christ is what culminates in the session. They're, they're so related. So Jesus sat down, but where and on what? Um, I was thinking a lot about furniture lately and how furniture can tell you a lot about a space. Uh, furniture can tell you a lot about, about a space. It can tell you a lot about what's done in that space. It can tell you a lot about what people do in that space, how they use that space. Uh, if you think about just general locations and rooms and whatnot, uh, you know, take a doctor's office, for instance, and the furniture in that room. Does it feel very comfortable <laughs> in that room? And do you want to spend time in that room? <laughs> why or why not? Or how about a living room, for instance? Usually living rooms are much more comfortable couches and chairs and recliners. There might be a TV in there, something to kick your feet up on. Um, a bathroom. Might be a little bit different than a living room, right? I hope. Um, I, I remember once going to a friend's house, and there was a room in the house that his mom had. It was, like, it was so well decorated. It was like the untouchable room. It was no one, I never saw anybody go in that room. Everything was like, it looked like it had never been touched. There might have even been like plastic over some of the furniture. And as a kid, I, always, I was always curious, like, there's a room that just is there. <laughs> no one can touch it. You just walk past it. Uh, and so, likewise, the furniture in that room and how, and, and how it's set up kind of helps us understand how that space is used. And so the furniture, likewise, in the tabernacle tells us a lot about the space in that room. In that in that particular room and how the people used it and what happened there. So uh, go to Hebrews chapter 9, if you just want to flip back. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, we sort of get like a rundown of some of the furniture in this room, in the tabernacle. And the author says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section of which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat of these things, which we cannot now speak in detail. So really quick, and you can look back if you want, but really what you see there is there's a lampstand. There's a table for the bread. Uh, there was a golden altar for incense. 
There was the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, one important uh, piece of furnishings that uh, was missing, though, that you kind of assume would be helpful, especially while you're going about your business throughout the day and you might want to take a break. Uh, there was no chair. Or was there? Or was there? Uh, there was a seat, wasn't there? There was a seat. In the most holy place, uh, the mercy seat above the ark, this was no ordinary seat, right? Um, it wasn't like you'd expect it to see like one of these chairs on top of the ark. Uh, it was a place between the cherubim and in the, in the Holy of Holies, the resting place upon the Ark of the Covenant, was no place for a priest to go into the Holy of Holies and just take a seat on top of the Ark. <laughs> and if you don't know what happens if you touch the Ark when you're not supposed to, you can go back and read <laughs> through the Old Testament and find out. However, what we do find out, though, in Hebrews chapter 10, is, again, this recount of uh, how these, these priests functioned, and what made Jesus a different priest. So I'll start reading in verse 11 again of chapter 10. And every priest stands daily to service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, the author of Hebrews actually captures this, uh, this sense of this session three other moments in his letter. Three other times he references it outside of this chapter. So in Hebrews 1, 3, he says, After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In Hebrews 8, verse 1, he says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And then the fourth time, later on in, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the, the author of Hebrews, throughout his entire letter, entire document, the author of Hebrews is contrasting the old covenant priesthood with Christ, our great high priest. Um, every priest under the old covenant stands. Always. Stands. They stand because their work is never finished. I mean, the author of Hebrews says specifically in many places the reason why their work is never finished because they keep offering sacrifices daily, repeatedly, and even though they're making these sacrifices over and over and over, day after day after day, guess what? They actually don't even do anything. He says they don't take away your sin. But they do it over and over and over. So the, the Old Covenant does not provide final assurance for the priest's work was, was never done. It was never done. They have to keep standing. They have to keep sacrificing. And they have to keep offering every day. Which is why 
they didn't need a chair in there. They would never, their work was never done. It was never finished. Jesus, however, he doesn't stand. Jesus sits. He sits at God's right hand, and he sits because his work is finished. In Hebrews 10, verse 14, just in case we've missed it because it's been all over the place, but in Hebrews 10, verse 14, the bottom section of our passage, the author says, For by a single offering, he, this is Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And, and the author of Hebrews, he, he uses the word perfected a lot. It's one of his favorites. And uh, what he's trying to say is that the law and its sacrifices didn't bring perfection. I mean, they just couldn't. It was impossible. Perfection in the book of Hebrews has to do with the idea that, that your sins are cleansed, removed, so that you are no longer defiled by guilt. It is complete. It is done. You are, you are perfected. If you, if you believe and trust in Christ right now in this room, you are perfect before God right now. Not because of what you did, but because of what Christ has done. Even though you and I still struggle with sin, today, tomorrow, believers who trust in Christ, by virtue of Christ's sacrifice, can now enter God's presence freely, boldly, daily, because the work of perfection is objective and it has been accomplished forever. And how do we know that? Because Jesus is sitting. His work is actually completed. And so while you sit in this room, you actually can sit and rest in the truth that Jesus has perfected you. So we, we believe Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus went up. Jesus sat down. Uh, but the, the other thing I want to look at next is uh, these five things. Uh, Jesus ascends and sits down to do at least five things. I think five life-changing things. What I mean is things that actually matter. That this isn't just like fun fact Sunday. Just get to learn about ascension and, and the session. I'm saying, what did this actually accomplish for you right now that actually matters um, as you go on and live your lives later? You know, why did Jesus even need to ascend? Why is it so important that he sat down? Well, he, he did descend to lead uh, a host of captives and um, he led them from, from Sheol, and then he ascended in order to give gifts. I just want to read briefly from, from Ephesians. If you want to turn there with me, you can. Um, Ephesians 4. And part of the reason uh, to turn here really quick is born out of the sense of just connecting the descent of Christ that we looked at a couple of weeks ago with now the ascension of Christ. Because Paul is going to highlight that in one passage for us. And so in uh, Ephesians 4, uh, beginning in verse 4, Paul writes, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then verse 7, he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And then in verse 9 he says, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who ascended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. So there's, there's a connection. You can read more of that later if you want, but the, the point being there's a connection between just the, the, the gravity and the depth of the work of Christ. He descended in order that he also might, might ascend. And so the five life-changing implications are that Jesus reigns, Jesus sends, Jesus prepares, Jesus rests, and Jesus advocates. So reign, send, prepare, rest, and advocate. Christ's ascension and session reveal five pillars that are essential to Christian theology. So first, the, the accession, accession of Christ grounds his exaltation, his reign. Second, the accession establishes the giving of the Holy Spirit. Third, the ascension secured a place for Christians in heaven for all eternity. And fourth, the session is where Christ enters his rest. And then finally, what we'll look at is the Christ's session is where he advocates and intercedes for you and I. And so we'll go through all five of these. And the first one is that Jesus reigns. You know, what does it mean that he actually ascended and he sits down? Well, he reigns. The right hand of God is the seat of ultimate authority. When the Father seated Jesus at the right hand, all things came under his subjection and rule. And this is what uh, Psalm 110 says. You know, uh, David wrote, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Well, the Hebrew, author of Hebrews goes all over that, and he quotes it so often to make his point that Jesus sat down. Uh, and just think for a moment, like, our religion, Christianity, uh, we, we emphasize that our God sits down. Um, it's strange, but powerful. But he reigns. He's, he is enthroned. Uh, this position is occupied by the one that God has anointed as king. And so it is both a royal and judicial position. Christ is, is, is installed as judge, essentially, of the supreme court of the entire universe. He is seated on his throne as king and judge. Without the ascension, Jesus would not be ruling right now. Without his exaltation, his coronation, his session, Jesus would possess no authority. His authority is the fact that he is on the throne. He is seated on his throne. But Jesus ascended to, this, to his session so that he would reign as king. And the Father, again, the Father raised Jesus from the dead and received him back. This truth of Jesus ascending and, and sitting, establishes the hope of every follower of Jesus Christ. Just as, as the Father welcomed his Son back into his glorious presence, one day, you who are sitting here, who believe, one day you also will ascend and reign with Christ. You will ascend and reign with your King, Jesus and so Jesus reigns, but the second thing is Jesus sends. He, Jesus ascended so that he could send the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus told his disciples that it was better that he goes. One of the most remarkable and probably sometimes hard to understand concepts in Scripture is when Jesus says to all his disciples, um, I know I'm God. Um, it's been great being with you. 
But trust me, guys, it's better that I leave you. <laughs> it is better that he leaves. And in John 16, verse 7, Jesus says, It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the helper will not come to you. Now, could Jesus just have stayed and still sent the helper? All I know is what Jesus said. It's better that I go away, and also, if I don't go away, the helper will not come. Uh, Jesus was making a value judgment here. He was making a value judgment that his absence would actually be necessary if better things were to come. And so in some mysterious, spectacular way, the indwelling of the Spirit among you and I far eclipses the physical presence of Jesus. And the, uh, the fact that somehow the absence of Jesus is better has always been, I think, difficult for the church to grasp, hasn't it? I'm sure many of you would probably have wondered, you know, wouldn't it be so cool if Jesus could just come up here right now and teach instead of me? Uh, yes. Wouldn't it be great if he all showed up to our small groups together? <laughs> um, wouldn't it be great if you had a problem in the week and you could just call him up and he'd come over? Well, Jesus would disagree. He actually said it was better <laughs> that he didn't stay. It was better that he left. Uh, we could daydream all we want about how nice it would be if Jesus was right here with us, but he actually says, no, it's better that I leave you so I can send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. See, during his, his earthly ministry, Jesus and his work was, was geographically located and isolated to one part of the world. Now that he's gone, Jesus can mediate and care for us in Merton. Merton of all places. Um, the Spirit can work here in Merton and everywhere else in the world because Jesus left. Because he said, I'm sending my Spirit to be with you. The Spirit, therefore, brings the direct revelation and power of God to build his church. That's why God sent his Spirit so Jesus ascended so that we, we could send, he could send the Spirit to live in you, to empower you. But the third thing, uh, not only does Jesus reign, not only does he send the Spirit, but the third thing is that Jesus prepares. Uh, Jesus ascended to prepare a place for you. He told the disciples before, you know, on the eve of his, his crucifixion and trial, he, he told them, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And we, we may have all had our moments in life where we, uh, we're going on a vacation and we're, or we're staying at a friend's house or we're looking forward to visiting a family member and they're telling us, like, we're getting, getting the room ready for you and getting things set up. And, and it's, a, it's a way of, you know, when we think of hospitality, you know, we can envision worldly what that looks like. Um, how much more better than our best versions of hospitality that we've experienced is the hospitality of Christ going to be? I'm going to go and get things ready for you. He ascended to do that. He's getting something ready for you. He's preparing a place for you. And he was so concerned about that 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 was at the heart of his prayer. He was praying that that's what the Father would do, that he would be with them and that we would be able to come with him to share in his very inheritance the fourth thing, though, is Jesus rests. 
He reigns, he sends, he prepares, Jesus rests. He rests because he gets to sit down. His work of redemption was complete. And his rest is a mark of the hope that you and I have, that we too, one day, will get to enter that rest eternally. Um, Your endless battles with sin will actually come to an end. You will no longer need to fight um, or be discouraged when your temper flares or uh, when you give in to temptation or when you fail again and again and again. You will have perfect and complete and final rest. And the fifth thing is that Jesus advocates. Uh, As much as we needed Christ's substitutionary atonement on the cross, we also need his advocacy, his intercession uh, before the Father. And and what that means really is, it's, it's now we're talking about what is Jesus really doing right now? The fact that Jesus sits at the right hand of God in heaven does not mean that he is perpetually fixed there, you know, in a chair, uh, immobilized, unable to move. Because Jesus continues to do work on our behalf. Um, He was seen by Stephen as standing at the right hand of God, and John even saw in his revelation Jesus walking among the churches, among the lampstands. So when when we talk about intercession and his advocacy, we're talking about how he applies the atonement. It's his moment by moment work of applying the atonement to us. What that means is that Jesus is actually praying for you right now. Jesus is caring for you and praying for you to the Father for your needs right now. So when you're struggling to overcome sin, when you feel like your, your conscience is troubling you, when you've messed up again and there's no way that God for, could forgive you this time, and you feel just utterly hopeless, like you've made a mess of your life, you cannot stop sinning, you feel like just giving in and giving up, and you feel condemned. Jesus, your advocate, rises to his feet, he stands, and he says, stop it. I've actually already taken care of this, so you will continue to sin, but the very fact that I have this seat is evidence that it has all been taken care of. His, his advocacy and his intercessory prayer outpaces your continued sinning. Even your best repenting of sin is plagued by more sin. And so to come to the Father without an advocate is hopeless, but Jesus is your ally. Jesus is your advocate. Jesus is your only hope. He comes to seek you and I out rather than waiting for us to come to him because he is righteous in in all the ways that we are not. His advocacy on our behalf rises higher than our sins. And so when you sin, when I sin, we need to remember and remind each other that Christ, our advocate, is standing before the Father defending you to the end. And what he's saying to his father is, look, look at this. Look at these wounds. I've already paid for it. It's done. The ascension and session of Jesus are, I believe, beautifully and necessarily remarkable truths for you and I. Jesus ascended. 
Jesus sat, and we will ascend, and one day we will sit. We will be with Christ forever, and we will experience perfect eternal rest. Just as Paul says in other places like Ephesians, he says, we have been raised up to sit with Christ in the heavenly places. In Colossians, he says, he exhorts us to seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Before today, and maybe even before you even first looked at the Apostles' Creed, if the Apostles' Creed omitted Jesus' ascension into heaven and his space at the right hand of the Father, would you have even noticed? Without the ascension of Jesus, the gospel possesses no present power because, because hope, our only hope, is founded upon his completed, perfect ministry. And I think that few, few words should be as comforting to the Christian as he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Let's pray. Jesus, you went up so you could sit down. What a simple truth. What a beautiful truth. And now, Lord, prepare in our hearts as we we want to we want to respond and we want to sing and we want to acknowledge the magnitude of that truth that you are our great high priest among other priests that never stopped they never stopped working they were always standing but you sat because your work was perfect your work was finished and so we get to sing words this morning that god eternal Humbled to the grave, Jesus, you are our Savior. You have been risen now to reign. We behold our God seated on the throne. We behold our King in which nothing can compare. And so, Lord, this morning we come. We want to adore you. We want to endure the King, Jesus, who will reign forever. Amen.